Well, it's uh, just two weeks until Noah's baptism. So it's uh, quite appropriate that the passage we're looking at this evening uh, should be about baptism. I wonder what you think is going on when someone is baptised. Some might look upon it as being an act of obedience. Um, Others might look upon it as being a a public declaration of faith in Christ. Um, Others might look upon it as being an initiation into the church of Jesus Christ. And of course, there's truth in all of those statements, aren't there? They are all aspects of what's going on when someone is (coughs) baptised. But... Uh, None of that is what Peter emphasises when he speaks of baptism here. Uh, To set the scene, remember last time we looked at that difficult passage, uh, verses 18 to 20 of chapter 3. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Now that's a passage that Roman Catholics use to support their mistaken doctrine of purgatory. Um, We didn't get sidetracked by that particular red herring, Um, Rather, we did our best to work out what the passage means and we concluded by, uh, we concluded that it was actually saying that through Jesus' death on the cross, although his body died, uh, his spirit was made even more alive. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, 45, that he became a life-giving spirit uh, in that his, his gospel with its power to give new life and save, became a reality through his work on the cross. And as such, he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, and we suggested that that could be understood in terms of him proclaiming the gospel of liberty to sinners through the witness and the preaching of his church. Moving on, the passage continues to be quite difficult. Um, We read in verses 21 and 22, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities and powers, having been subjected to him. Now, clearly, that is about baptism. And it's sometimes used to support another false doctrine. Um, it's, it's a doctrine that's um, known as baptismal regeneration. It's held by Roman Catholics and some others as well. Uh, and it's the, the idea that baptism is necessary for salvation because they maintain that baptism itself is the means of regeneration. And if that's so, administering baptism almost mechanically 
bestows saving grace and new life upon people. And if that was the case, then we wouldn't need to preach the gospel at all, would we? We'd simply need to get people dunked and that's job done. Um, clearly, that's not, not the case at all. But let's see what Peter has to say about baptism in, in verse uh, 21 and 22. And essentially, I think there are two points here. Firstly, Peter presents baptism exemplified uh, and then baptism explained. So um, baptism exemplified... Uh, we see that because verse 21 begins in the ESV by saying baptism which corresponds to this. Now the NIV has and this water symbolises baptism. But, but the word water isn't actually in the, in the Greek text at all. Uh, and rather than symbolises baptism, baptism, the text actually says baptism is symbolised by this. So the idea is that baptism has been prefigured by something. There's already been an example of something a bit similar. Now clearly in saying that baptism which corresponds to this, or this symbolises baptism, Peter's referring back to what he just said in the previous verse. He'd been talking about the days of Noah and the ark, in which a few people, that is eight persons, were brought safely through Water. So what's the, what's the correspondence or, or connection between baptism and what happened then uh, in Noah's day? Well, some would be quick to say, ah, the connection's water. Back, Noah, flood, lots of water. Baptism, you're being immersed in water. Water's the connection. Uh, but, I mean, I think the NIV um, clearly assumes that because of the way it inserted the word water uh, when it said and this water symbolizes baptism but but if you give it a moment's thought it's very you very quickly realize that it doesn't actually make very good sense you see although baptism and the flood both involve water it isn't really uh, a very good correspondence between them why do i say that well peter's going to go on to say that baptism now saves you. Now we we'll think about the sense in which that is true uh, later on, but for now it's difficult to see any sense in which the water of the flood saved Noah and his companions. That the fact is that the flood, all that water, came as God's judgment upon the people of Noah's day. It was judgment upon the sinful people of Noah's day. It was sent to destroy them. And that's exactly what it did. So that, that's what the, that, that water was for. The fact that Noah and his companions were saved from the flood, it certainly wasn't because of the water. The water was what they were being saved from. They were being saved from the flood by means of the ark that, that God uh, commanded Noah to build. The water didn't save them. That's what they were saved from. What saved them was the ark that God had commanded. So in saying they were brought safely through water, Peter wasn't saying that they were saved by means of the water. He was saying that as a result of being in the ark, 
they came safely through the, the turbulent, destructive water of judgment. So they were brought safely through water or saved through water. You could think of it in terms of them being saved from the water by means of the ark that God provided. Now, of course, baptism involves passing through water. Uh, so it seems to me that the point of correspondence between baptism and what happened in Noah's day is the idea is the idea of being brought safely through water or saved through water by means of something else. In Noah's day, Noah and his companions were saved from the water by something. And in, in baptism, the idea is of being saved again from something, uh, uh, being saved from the water by something. Peter's saying, amongst other things, that the water in baptism represents the judgment and punishment that we deserve as sinners and baptism itself represents being saved from that so with that example as background uh, let's go on to look at what Peter had to say uh, about baptism explained according to one commentator uh, 1 Peter 3.21 is the nearest approach to a definition of baptism that the New Testament affords. Peter, Peter's explanation of baptism is given in the words, baptism now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now the sentence construction there is, is such that it's easy to miss the main thrust of what's actually being said. I think it's helpful if we consider those words not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience, as being almost, if you like, in parenthesis. It's not to say they're not important, but they are, if you like, a bit of an aside. It's, it's in addition to the main thrust. It's providing clarification. But if you take those words away for a moment, then I think the thrust becomes much more clear. It's much more evident. It becomes baptism now saves you through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So Peter's saying baptism now saves you. So this is personal. He's addressing his readers and they were believers in Christ as such that they were saved. And clearly they've been baptised. This isn't something that's just theoretical. Peter is referring to their own experience. Secondly, let's make sure that we don't overlook that little word now. You see, it would make perfectly good sense if Peter had have left that word out. He could have said, baptism saves you through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's, that's true. That perf makes perfectly good sense. But he said, baptism now saves you. Why does he make a point of saying that? You might think it just means in his day or now in, in our day rather than in Noah's day. But I think the point is that there's a huge difference between now and then. He's emphasising now as opposed to then. It's now in these gospel days in contrast to Noah's days. It's, 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 it's now post-Christ uh, in contrast 
to the days before Christ. There's a huge difference between now and then. You see, in Noah's day, God's judgment took the form of sinful people being being destroyed by means of a, a physical destruction inflicted by the flood. And Noah and his companions were brought safely through water, or saved through water, because they were saved from that physical destruction by means of a physical ark that God provided. But now, that, that, you see, that physical destruction was a, a foreshadowing, a picturing, if you like, of the eternal judgment that is to come. No mere boat is going to save anyone from that. The point is that there's now something that can save from that eternal judgment. Uh, Back in verse 18, uh, Peter said, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. You see, Jesus has now suffered in our place for our sins in order to bring us to God. He's, if you like, our ark who can bring us safely out of judgment. His resurrection is is the proof and the vindication of what he's done. It demonstrates that he's come through judgment safely and because he did that in our place and on our behalf, we're in him just as Noah was in the ark and we're brought safely out of judgment and back to God just as surely as Noah and his companions were brought safely through water. So, be in no doubt, it isn't baptism itself that saves. It's Christ who saves through his death on the cross. Uh, Paul alludes to, to baptism in Colossians 2, 12-15, when he said, Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by cancelling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. You see, baptism represents our being in Christ. It represents us being joined to him. It's not baptism that saves. We're saved by being united with Christ in his death and resurrection. It's through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Uh, We see that God made us alive together with him. We see that God has forgiven us all our trespasses. It's all because Christ bore them on the cross. Our salvation is entirely God's doing through the work of Christ. Well, that being the case, in what sense is it true to say that baptism now saves you? How does it work? What's the connection between being baptised and being saved through the resurrection of Jesus? Well, Peter explains that by those uh, words that we said were in parenthesis. 
And uh, I think he's careful to make it absolutely clear by means of a, of a contrast. He makes a comparison. Because you see those words not and but. He shows how it doesn't work. And he shows how it does work to make it absolutely sure that there's no misunderstanding. So firstly, he says it's not as a removal of dirt from the body. Now, removal of dirt from the body is, if you like, the natural effect of being immersed in water, isn't it? Put a dirty object in water, pull it out, and hopefully most of the dirt's gone. That, that's just what naturally happens if you immerse something in water. But Peter is saying that's not the point of what's going on in baptism. That immediately tells us that there's nothing physical that's having an effect. You know, in the case of Noah and the others, they were brought safely through water by being physically present in a physical ark. But the physical act of being baptised doesn't have a similar effect. Now, as an aside, I think it's, um, it's worth noting that although the, the mode of baptism isn't the particular focus uh, of attention here, but it does seem to suggest that Peter was thinking in terms of baptism as being by immersion. You know, sprinkling a few drops of water uh, would hardly bring to mind the idea of the removal of dirt, would it? The very fact that he, he makes that connection really does suggest that, that baptism is by immersion. But that, that's an aside. Uh, it's interesting also to note that the Greek word that's been translated as body here is sarks. Now, that's usually translated as flesh. And that isn't referring to our physical bodies. Uh, it's speaking of, of the fallen, corrupted human nature. So Peter's not only saying that baptism isn't about producing any sort of physical <coughs> cleansing, he's also saying it doesn't produce moral cleansing or, or spiritual cleansing either. Being baptised doesn't magically bring about some sort of moral transformation. It doesn't wash away sin. So it's neither a physical thing nor a, a, a spiritual thing. You know, Peter's really saying that baptism is neither mechanical nor mystical. So, what is baptism about then? How are we to understand what's going on? Well, Peter goes on to say, but, okay, we've had the not, now but, in contrast, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. Now, the NIV has the pledge of a clear conscience towards God. Now, clearly the words appeal and pledge have quite different meanings, don't they? You know, if the word is appeal, then it really means something like ask or, or, or request, or it could even be as strong as demand. Uh, in that case, it would speak of our need and our dependence and placing our confidence in someone else. If the word is pledge, well, that would mean something like promise or, or commitment. And in that case, it would speak of our, our confidence in ourselves 
to deliver. Now, the Greek word in question could have either of those meanings. Either is a, a legitimate translation of that particular Greek word. Um, and this is the only occasion in which it occurs in the whole New Testament. So we, we can't look to other New Testament usage to try and work out uh, which, which meaning uh, is the best one to take. Um, to, to work out whether we're best to think of it as uh, appealed or pledged, um, I think we need to consider what it is that's either being appealed or being pledged. And we see that that to be a good conscience or a, a clear conscience towards God. And that's really the idea of being able to stand before God without shame, uh, without fear. The idea is, is of being confident that we are acceptable to him. And once you see that, then I think the intended sense becomes obvious, doesn't it? We can't promise God that we'll be worthy. We can't promise to love, honour, obey and serve him with all our hearts and all our minds and all our souls uh, as we should. It's hard to imagine a promise that would be more, more rash and more deluded. You know, people say don't make promises you can't keep. Well, there's a prime example, isn't it? That's a promise we're never going to be able, never going to be able to, to never going to be able to, to keep. So, once you recognise that, then clearly this isn't, this is speaking of a, an appeal to God. Uh, we, we must ask Him to give us the good conscience that He looks for and that we need. And the wonderful thing is that Although we fall so helplessly short uh, of all that he requires, we don't have to appeal to God for a good conscience in a sort of panicky desperation. You know, sometimes when someone's been found guilty of a crime, they go on to the court of appeal, won't they? Uh, and to do that, there has to be a basis for the appeal. You know, perhaps an alleged irregularity in the original trial or perhaps new evidence has, has come to light since then but of course there's e even if you go to appeal there's no guarantee that the appeal will succeed that the verdict can still go either way can't it so it's a, a tense and uncertain situation for the defendant well we stand guilty before God by nature but we can appeal to him for a good conscience and we can do so with confidence of a successful outcome. You see, the basis of that appeal is not that there's any irregularity with, with the judgment against us. That, that's all perfectly true. We are, we're guilty sinners. And it's not that... Uh, it's not that there's new evidence to consider. We can't say, well, yes, I was like that, but I've been good since. That there isn't new evidence to take into consideration. Any, any further evidence is every bit as damning as anything that went before. Yet we can make an appeal with absolute confidence because the basis of that appeal 
is Jesus and what he has done in dying on the cross for us. We read in Hebrews 9.14 How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? You see, we plead the blood of Christ to purify our consciences. Hebrews 10.19-23 Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places, by the blood of Christ, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. What confidence is being expressed there? How come? It's because we've been cleansed from an evil conscience by the blood of Christ. He's the the perfect and certain ground for our appeal. That's how baptism now saves you through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Not because water uh, either naturally or supernaturally does anything, not because of the ritual or ceremony or or any words spoken in conjunction with it. It saves solely because it represents an appeal to God on the basis of the saving work of Christ that came to completion when he rose from the dead. Um, John Piper says, Baptism is an outward expression of a spiritual inward appeal to God for cleansing. In other words, baptism is a way of saying to God, I trust you to apply the death of Jesus to me for my sins and to bring me through death and judgment into new and everlasting life through the resurrection of Jesus. Well, from that it follows that that baptism can only be for believers, can't it? Uh, Apart from faith in Christ, it's an empty, meaningless, outward ritual. So baptism saves solely and simply because it's an appeal uh, of faith. Paul in Romans 10.13 said, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Well, Well, baptism is such a calling on the name of the Lord. It's an appeal to him for forgiveness of sin and newness of life on the basis of the work of, of our risen Saviour. It's for that reason that baptism is for believers. In the absence of belief and faith in Christ, well, no such appeal is being made to God. You know, someone might be immersed in, in water, but it's not Christian baptism uh, unless it's being done as a, an outward expression of personal, Christ-dependent, appealing to God for a good conscience. Well, we close by looking at some um, verse 22. Now, having said that baptism now saves you through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, Peter goes on to say, of the risen Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities and powers, 
having been subjected to him. Now in the context of this evening's sermon, that might sound a bit like a PS. Uh, but in the context of the chapter, it provides a, a glorious climax. It's a, if you like, a grand finale. Um, sometimes you hear the question asked, where are they now? And uh, almost invariably that's being asked of, I don't know, a, an actor or musician or sportsman, some sort of celebrity, someone who was once <coughs> famous. And the answer to the question very often is, well, they're no longer anywhere special. They, they, they've returned to obscurity. They, they, they've had their moments of fame but in most cases, their, their lives are now quite ordinary and mundane. In some cases, perhaps their lives are even quite sad, quite tragic. Well, the man, Christ Jesus, is very much the opposite of that all-too-familiar pattern. You know, although he was, was popular in some quarters for a while, his life on earth really is perhaps best summed up in the words, he was despised and rejected. He was mocked, he was mistrusted, he was falsely accused, he was abused, and his life, uh, his life was a, a life of suffering that led to the death on the cross. Well, if the rich and the famous can fall into obscurity, what would you expect of the likes of him to be? But Peter has told us that Jesus has risen from the dead. And where is Jesus now? Well, Peter answers that question by saying that he has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities and powers having been subjected to him. And in those words, we, we see his, his place, his position and his power. Had to get some alliteration in somewhere. to <laughs> kept you waiting until near the end this time, but there you go. But you see... What do we see about his place? Well, we see that he's gone into heaven. He's returned to the glory from which he came. You remember he prayed in, in John 17. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. That prayer has been answered. That prayer has been answered. He is once again in the presence of the Father. In addition to that, we see something about his position in the presence of the Father. Because Peter says he's at the right hand of God. Well, that speaks of a position of, of honour and authority. You know, it's not being flippant to say that Jesus is God's right hand man. That the man Christ Jesus is there at the right hand of God. And that's not just a, an honorary position. Because we see that he has real power in occupying that position in the presence of the Father. Peter says, uh, he, he speaks of angels, authorities and powers having been subjected to him. The clear message is that the risen Lord Jesus Christ is now reigning over all things from heaven. His enemies and our enemies are all subject to him. You know, the, the message is, Jesus suffered terribly. But look at him now. Look where he is now. Why did he suffer so? Well, verse 18 told us, didn't it? That he might bring us to God. And Peter's saying that his readers might also have to suffer 
in this world, but their baptism is their appeal to God to be saved through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. points back to his death on the cross and the forgiveness of sin is accomplished, but it also points forward to his subsequent ascension and his all-conquering reign. He's now with God on our behalf and he will bring us to God exactly as intended. If we're in Christ, besides the joy of knowing that we're forgiven, we also have that confidence that we'll be brought through suffering to share in his victory. In fact, there's a very real sense in which we can think of ourselves as already being there with him. That might sound presumptuous, but look at what Paul says in Ephesians 2, 4 to 7. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ. So, baptism is an appeal to God on the basis uh, of what the Lord Jesus Christ has done. And if we are united with Christ, then we have confidence of what lies ahead and we even have confidence that we are, even now, in him. In one sense, we are already in those heavenly places. So may that give us great uh, confidence and cause for rejoicing.